Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 213th episode of the Nauticast, titled The Rule of Law, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 9, in which Tyrion is put on trial for a murder he did not commit. But he did really, really want to, and I feel like that's got to count for something. Wanting to murder? Really? What is that even? It's like giving a Nobel Prize for attempted chemistry. (laughs) We missed out on Kelsey Grammer's tier, and I don't know how that would have worked, but somehow, somehow we should have gotten it. It would have worked great, is how it would have worked, yes. (laughs) Kelsey Grammer, a former high school debater, so totally checks out as a... Tyrion stand-in. Oh man, the most pedantic possible version of Tyrion. We are are not worthy. So, uh, very excited to welcome on our special guest for this episode. You may know them both from their excellent uh, Song of Ice and Fire podcast, Learned Hands. Please welcome back Clint and Mary to the Nauticast. Thank you so much for for both of you for coming on. Thanks for having us. It's it's (laughs) nice to be back. Really great to be on the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast. And um for such an auspicious lawyerly chapter feels exactly feels lovely it feels like we're stepping into very comfortable shoes and that's that's just nice i like that yeah we had you on for the the Tyrion uh jano slint uh shadow on a wall chapter we're going through all the the best Tyrion ones we're snapping them all up before girls gone canon gets to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true you know they're waiting until last to do Tyrion, and i appreciate that i respect that well we'll see we'll see what they when they do yeah. Tyrion. there's a Many, many possibilities left, but yes. All right, so our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron, James K., who asks, Do you think George is signaling anything about the houses he mentions in the appendices? The great houses I get, but he also shows Hightower and Florent. Should we expect more from them going forward? So yeah, the appendices obviously mostly show the main characters, the main factions, what they're up to, but there are definitely houses lingered over and some of them that don't show up much in the text themselves. So anyone have any thoughts about what, what might be what might be being set up with them? Yeah, I just have a question. What are the appendices? <laughs> what are books? Yeah. It's that part in your like, lower told left part of your abdomen that sometimes blows up. That's as far as I know. Oh, yeah. No, I got that removed when I was a kid. That's, that's the part of books you just get removed when they're going to get <laughs> too large. Exactly. That's why it's called yeah, it. get the surgery. <laughs> It's Clint. It's the part of the brief that I am personally assigned <laughs> okay. to write. Right. So yeah, I skip past that stuff. So I don't know. So as I like to do in our quest- question section, I'm going to give a very non-committal answer. Um, I d- <laughs> I do think George is very much interested in form, like in terms of like the medium in which he is communicating his art through. So having something buried in the appendice- appendices is something that he would do. Um, like there, like I bet you there's a name in there that we that's only in the appendices that shows up and does something, maybe not major, but something consequential, let's say. Um, and with the high towers, that's the one I go back on, back and forth on. Obviously, they're in Old Town, and we expect a lot of stuff to happen in Old Town, and we've only glimpsed Old Town um, as of a Feast for Crows, and not that much even. Um, but he could still, I could see him doing a whole Old Town thing, kind of without them, or without them being a huge part of it. And that's a house he's basically kind of set aside for house of the dragon or fire and blood related stuff um so they're just kind of there for color um and as for the florence we have enough fucking florence come on man i read those davos (laughs) chapters we don't need any more of them yeah no kidding great 
you know, I think about them as a a a commitment strategy for himself. Um, right. If we think about George as someone that's a gardener, well, if he puts down certain things, then at least he's committed to that going forward. So maybe it's sort of George's way of like sketching out parts of this, you know, characters, at least points of the story that he's not going to change. Giving himself little goals, absolutely. Little affirmations to get there. <laughs> totally agree, especially in the case of the Hightowers, because that's a family that is so prominent in the backstory and really not at all in the present day of the story. Like, we don't even hear about them being a big part of Renly's camp when we get down to the Reach and we're meeting all those houses for the first time. They don't really take part in that. We've only seen a glimpse of Old Town, like Manu said, and even then we don't see the Hightowers themselves at any point. We're just hanging out in the Citadel for the couple of chapters we get there. So I definitely think George is, is keeping them on ice while he figures out what exactly he wants to do with them. Uh, part of me just thinks they're there to get killed by Euron or there to put up a fight against Euron since that's, that seems to be where he's headed. But they're up to some crazy uh, magical nonsense up at the top of the high tower. So I think he wants at least, yeah, exactly. He wants them to be to be on paper so he can prove to himself he's eventually going to get to them. And uh, yeah, some, some houses like the Florence, I think he just likes writing out minor characters so that if he needs supporting characters for someone in the area, he has them hanging around. They can pop up in Old Town. Uh, I think that's, there's still, I think, a branch of the Brave Companions that are said to be headed in that direction, Urswick the Faithful. And part of the Bloody Mummers are supposed to be escaping toward Old Town. So George can always make them show up if he feels like it. And that is one area of the story, I think, specifically, he did not have a strong, super strong sense of where he was going and wanted to leave himself a lot of room. That's why the prologue, the Feast for Crows prologue, took so many different forms while he was nailing that down. So the appendices might just tie into that, that he wants to leave himself as much room as possible in the parts of the story he's not certain about. So thank you so much to James K. for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits, including exclusive episodes every month, early access to our regular episodes, and the chance to ask us questions at the top of our regular episodes. But we are here today to talk about the Storm of Swords, Tyrion 9, yes. chapter which... Like pretty much every other chapter of the end of Storm I've been looking forward to for a long time. So uh, let's jump into the synopsis. Tyrion, Sir Kevon Lannister said wearily, if you are indeed innocent of Joffrey's death, you should have no difficulty proving it at trial. Oh, is that how it works in Westeros? Guilty until proven innocent, I guess. Or Lannister until proven innocent, as I like to think about it. <laughs> Tyrion asks who will be judging him, besides the reader, that is. Uncle Kevon says that Big Daddy Tywin has asked Mace Tyrell and Oberyn Martell to join him as judges. Tyrion was scarcely reassured. Mace Tyrell had been Joffrey's good father, however briefly, and the Red Viper was, well, a snake. Ah, Tyrion, you're going to regret that when Oberyn stands as your mm. champion. You should really apologize to him while you, you know, still can. Speaking of which, Tyrion asks Uncle Kevon if he'll be allowed to demand trial by combat like he did in the Vale. Kevon says, uh, technically yes, but Cersei plans to name Gregor Clegane her champion if he does that, so trial by combat might just be a quicker way for Tyrion to die. I shall need to sleep on this. I need to speak with Bronn, and soon. He didn't want to think about what this was like to cost him. Bronn had a lofty notion of what his skin was worth. Yep, classic Bronn, always boo-hoo-hoo, I don't want to die for no reason. <laughs> so selfish. <laughs> Kevon tells Tyrion that Cersei already has a long, long list of witnesses against him. If Tyrion will make a list of his own witnesses, Kevon will do his best to put them on the stand. For now, Tyrion asks only that Kevon send Podrick Payne to visit him. He waddled to the writing table. But when he heard the door open, he turned back and said, Uncle? Sir Kevon paused. Yes? I did not do this. I wish I could believe that, Tyrion. 
Tyrion tries to think of potential witnesses for the defense, but keeps running into the problem that he has no friends and everyone hates him. Pod finally shows up. Tyrion tells him to fetch Bronn, and Pod responds like he usually does in the least reassuring way imaginable. He doesn't come back that night, nor the next morning, leaving Tyrion alone with his thoughts, which are not great company right now. He writes Sansa's name on the witness list, thinking that she must have poisoned Joffrey. Any doubts Tyrion might have had vanished when his wife did. One flesh, one heart, one soul. His mouth twisted. She wasted no time proving how much those vows meant to her, did she? Well, what did you expect, dwarf? Yeah, what did you expect from your captive child bride, Tyrion? Were you looking forward to that first anniversary gift? Tyrion is still sensible enough to wonder where Sansa would have gotten poison, and he doubts that she would have acted on her own. But even if Sansa was responsible, he knows everyone would believe that her husband helped her do it. Kevon comes back to tell Tyrion that the trial will start in three days, that Adam Marbrand is searching for Sansa, good luck buddy, and that he, Kevon, will find and send Podrick once more. The clumsiest squire in Westeros finally returns with Bronn, who's looking good. Rather too good for Tyrion's taste. It took you long enough. The boy begged, I wouldn't have come at all. I'm expecting the castle Stokeworth for supper. Stokeworth? Tyrion hopped from the bed. And pray what is there for you in Stokeworth? A bride? Bronn smiled like a wolf contemplating a lost lamb. I'm to wed Lawless the day after next. Oh, a wedding. And I promised myself I wouldn't cry. Tyrion immediately realizes that Cersei is bribing Bronn to keep him from helping Tyrion. But Bronn doesn't care, even when Tyrion raises objection after objection. Lawless is, quote, dim-witted, she's pregnant, and she's not even the heir to Stokeworth. Not yet, says Bronn, planning to kill his way up the family tree until he's in charge. Are we sure he's not a fray? <laughs> Why are you here, then? Bronn shrugged. You once told me that if everyone ever asked me to sell you out, you double the price. Yes. Is it two wives you want, or two castles? One of each would serve, but if you want me to kill Gregor Clegane for you, it'd best be a damn big castle. Well, there is Casterly Rock, biggest castle of them all, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. Here and now, Tyrion can only offer gold and gratitude. Bronn already has the former and really does not care about the latter. Tyrion tries to paint a picture of a future where he's ruling the north in Sansa's name and can give a big chunk of it to Bronn. But Bronn sees through all the hypotheticals in there and points out that Lawless is nearby and available. Not a prospect I would relish. Is that so? Bronn grinned. Admitted imp. Given a choice between fucking Lawless and fighting the mountain, you'd have your breeches down and cock up before a man could blink. He knows me too bloody well. Tyrion argues that the wounds Gregor has taken in the war will slow him down. Bronn points out the obvious. Speed is not the problem with Gregor. They don't call him the Roadrunner, they call him the Mountain because he's eight feet tall and can crush you like a tin can. What does he frighten you so much? asked Tyrion, hoping to provoke him. If he didn't frighten me, I'd be a bloody fool. Only when a man is afraid can he be brave. Uh, brave might be the wrong word here, just not suicidal. Bronn says he could imagine taking down Gregor by tiring him out and getting him off his feet, but the odds would be against Bronn the whole time. And anyway, why should he even try? If he loses, he dies. If he wins, he still loses because Cersei will take away Stokeworth. I sell my sword, I don't give it away. I'm not your bloody brother. No, said Tyrion sadly. You're not. He waved a hand. Be gone, then. Run to Stokeworth and Lady Lawless. May you find more joy in your marriage bed than I ever, I ever found in mine. Bronn hesitated at the door. What will you do, imp? Kill Gregor myself. Won't that make for a jolly song? I hope I hear them sing it. Bronn grinned one last time and walked out of the door, the castle, and his life. Pod shuffled his feet. I'm sorry. Why? Is it your fault that Bronn's an insolent black-hearted rogue? He's always been an insolent black-hearted rogue. That's what I liked about him. Tyrion gets drunk because why fix what ain't broke, 
and thinks through his options, such as they are. The clansmen are long gone, and Tyrion doesn't actually plan on facing the mountain on his own. The last thing he wants is to give the crowd another big show. Bad news for Tyrion. Kevon keeps on coming back to bring more bad news. No one has found Sansa, nor Sir Dantos Hollard, who was seen with her on the night of Joffrey's wedding. He did not sleep at all that night. Instead, he lay in the dark, staring up at the canopy and counting his ghosts. He saw Tysha smiling as she kissed him, saw Sansa naked and shivering in fear. He saw Joffrey clawing his throat, the blood running down his neck as his face turned black. He saw Cersei's eyes, Bronn's wolfish smile, Shay's wicked grin. Even the thought of Shay could not arouse him. He fondled himself, thinking that perhaps if he woke his cock and satisfied it, he might rest more easily afterward, but it was no good. Wow. That's how you know this is serious. Like, ghosts of Christmas past are bad enough, but I'm pretty sure Tyrion can't get hard is one of the signs of the apocalypse. It's up there. In the morning, Adam Marbrand shows up to escort Tyrion to his trial. Tyrion wonders why he doesn't get a Kingsguard ex escort as a member of the royal family, but Marbrand points out the inconvenient little detail that most of the Kingsguard are witnesses for the prosecution. I guess Tyrion will have to wait a couple more chapters to reunite with Jaime. Marbrand brings Tyrion to the throne room. Marbrand brings Tyrion to the throne room, where hundreds are waiting to watch the show. The judges sit at a table set before the Iron Throne. Tyrion wonders if there could be a way to set Oberyn and Mace Tyrell against each other. Don't worry, Tyrion. Much as Oberyn might dislike Mace Tyrell, he fucking hates your dad. And at least you have that in common. The High Septon began with a prayer, asking the Father above to guide them to justice. When he was done, the Father below leaned forward to say, Tyrion, did you kill King Joffrey? He would not waste a heartbeat. No. Well, that's a relief, said Oberyn Martell dryly. Yeah, I'm with Oberyn. Trial over. Thanks for coming, everyone. Very short chapter this episode. Mace Tyrell asks Tyrion if Sansa killed Joffrey. Tyrion thinks that, yeah, she probably did, but he still feels honor-bound to protect his wife, so he blames the pigeon pie. Sadly, that does not convince the judges, so they bring in the first witness, Balin Swan of the Kingsguard. Surprisingly, he speaks up for Tyrion, praising his courage during the battle and proclaiming him innocent. Tyrion wonders what Cersei is up to, but he quickly figures it out when Sir Balin, honest to a fault, admits that Tyrion struck Joffrey during the bread riots. In the days of the Targaryens, a man who struck one of the Blood Royal would lose the hand he struck him with, observed the Red Viper of Dorne. Did the dwarf regrow his little hand, or did you white swords forget your duty? He was of the Blood Royal himself, Sir Balin answered, and the king's hand beside. No, Lord Tywin said. He was acting hand, in my stead. Hard to decide what's more annoying here. Oberyn getting nostalgic for the days when Arian Brightflame went around assaulting puppeteers, or Tywin <laughs> acting like he's not the one who put Tyrion in charge. We report, you decide. Marin Trant is up next and greatly exaggerates Tyrion's assault on Joffrey. Tyrion realizes that Cersei deliberately started with the notoriously honest Balin Swan, so that the stories told of Tyrion could only get worse from there. Boros Blount then tells the judges about how Tyrion compared Joffrey to Eris and threatened brave, bold Sir Boros's life in the process. Tyrion points out that Boros is leaving out what Joffrey was doing to provoke all that dangerous talk, namely having his brave, bold Kingsguard knights beat Sansa, but Tywin, for a change, just tells his son to shut up. Next up in the Kingsguard murderer's row, semi-literally, is Osmond Kettleblack, along with his non-Kingsguard brothers, Osney Kettleblack, Osford Kettleblack, Doc Kettleblack, Dopey Kettleblack, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Kettleblack, etc. They tell the judges about Tyrion threatening Cersei, once again leaving out the inciting incident, Cersei kidnapping Aliyaya. Osmond goes so far as to say Joffrey asked for protection from Tyrion, who supposedly craved Joffrey's crown. Tyrion correctly calls Osmond a liar and moves to attack him, which would have gone about as well as Tyrion going up against the mountain himself, but the guards stop him and Tywin calls it a day. 
That night, Tyrion asks Kevon to send him Varys, because surely Tyrion can trust the most notorious liar in all of Westeros. Speaking of liars, Pycelle testifies the next day. He names all of the poisons Tyrion took from his rooms when Tyrion threw Pycelle in jail. Pycelle, Tyrion called out, risking his father's wrath, could any of these poisons choke off a man's breath? No, for that you must turn to a rarer poison. When I was a boy at the Citadel, my teachers named it simply the Strangler. But this rare poison was not found, was it? No, my lord. Pycelle blinked at him. You used it all to kill the noblest child the gods ever put on this good earth. God damn. Can we put Pycelle on trial next just for that? <laughs> Tyrion, understandably, gets real angry again. But Big Daddy Tywin again tells him to shut up. And the train of witnesses continues. Some people heard Tyrion threaten Joffrey, others saw him fill the chalice, and still others saw him pour said chalice out on the floor. Hard to blame society for that last one. That really is all Tyrion's fault. And the hits keep coming. <laughs> when Kevon visits Tyrion that night, it's to break the news that Varys will be testifying the next day against Tyrion. Kevon then advises his nephew to confess already and take the black. Tyrion doubts he would be allowed to join the Night's Watch, but Kevon tells him his only other option at this point is execution. You are my brother's son. You might remind him of that. Do you think he would allow you to take the black if he were not his own blood, and Joanna's? Tywin seems a hard man to you, I know, but he is no harder than he's had to be. Our own father was gentle and amiable, but so weak his bannermen mocked him in their cups. Some saw fit to defy him openly. Other lords borrowed our gold and never troubled to repay it. At court they japed of toothless lions. Even his mistress stole from him, a woman scarcely one step above a whore, and she helped herself to my mother's jewels. It fell to Tywin to restore House Lannister to its proper place, just as it fell to him to rule this realm when he was no more than twenty. He bore that heavy burden for twenty years, and all it earned him was a mad king's envy. Instead of the honor he deserved, he was made to suffer slights beyond count, yet he gave the Seven Kingdoms peace, Plenty and justice. <laughs> he is a just man. You would be wise to trust him. Got through with a straight face. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Where is my Oscar? What? <laughs> what? None of this is true. Anyway, sorry. Go. Lots to unpack there. For now, I will just say that Kevon really does believe it, even if we don't. Tyrion can't stand the thought of confessing, given that it would cement his negative reputation in the court of public opinion, as well as, you know, the literal court. The next day, Varys hammers that negative reputation home by accusing Tyrion of isolating and threatening Joffrey before providing a whole book's worth of painstaking details to back it up. Tyrion thinks with 2020 hindsight that he really should have executed Varys as soon as he arrived in King's Landing. Yeah, it turns out head spikes walls was the way to go after all. Tyrion really should have taken his own advice. Cersei says she is but one more surprise witness for the next day. Ooh, who could it be? Stone Snake? Kyle Condon? The Tyroshi sellsword George forgot about? Could be anybody. That night, Tyrion gets a visit from someone besides Uncle Kevon for once. Oberyn Martell. Are judges permitted to visit the accused? Princes are permitted to go where they will. Or so I told your guards. The Red Viper took a seat. My father will be displeased with you. The happiness of Tywin Lannister has never been high on my list of concerns. Is it Dornish wine you're drinking? From the arbor. Oberyn made a face. Red water. It'd be fun at some point to go through the books and keep track of everyone's favorite wine. I guess Oberyn likes Arbor Gold about as much as he likes lies. Oberyn tells Tyrion that Cersei has been flirting with him, hinting that she'll marry him if he votes to execute Tyrion. But then Oberyn tells a story about how a Tyrell lord sent by the Targaryens to occupy Dorne was assassinated with a bunch of scorpions. The punchline? Oberyn would rather share his bed with those scorpions than with Cersei. Who can blame him? To be sure, I have much to thank your sister for. If not for her accusation at the feast, it might well be you judging me instead of me judging you. The prince's eyes were dark with amusement. Who knows more of poison than the Red Viper of Dorne, after all? 
who has better reason to want to keep the Tyrells far from the crown. And with Joffrey in his grave, by Dornish law the Iron Throne should pass next to his sister Marcella, who as it happens is betrothed to mine own nephew. Thanks to you. Wow, I guess it was Oberyn who killed Joffrey. Case closed, lock him up. Tyrion hadn't even considered which of his sister's remaining bastards would replace Joffrey on the Iron Throne. He correctly points out that Tywin will crown Tommen, but Oberyn suggests that his brother Prince Duran might crown Marcella down in Dorne, and that Cersei would support her daughter over her son. Tyrion thinks that, yeah, Cersei might well back Marcella in order to enhance her own political position as a woman, but it doesn't matter because Tywin is the one in charge. Your father, said Prince Oberyn, may not live forever. Something about the way he said it made the hairs on the back of Tyrion's neck bristle. Suddenly he was mindful of Elia again, and all that Oberyn had said as they had crossed the Field of Ashes. He wants the head that spoke the words, not just the hand that swung the sword. It is not wise to speak such treasons in the Red Keep, my prince. The little birds are listening. Let them. Is it treason to say a man is mortal? Valar Morghulis was how they said it in Valyria of old. All men must die. And the doom came, and proved it true. Yeah, true, the doom invented death. Before that, we all lived forever and held hands and danced under a rainbow. Good times. Oberyn tells Tyrion that Mace Tyrell is prepared to vote for execution. As for Oberyn himself, he is such a contrarian that he thinks Tyrion's obvious guilt is proof of his innocence. But why should Oberyn care? After all, his sister and her children were definitely 100% innocent, and there has been no justice for their deaths. Perhaps Joffrey's real killer was eaten by a bear. That seems to happen quite often in King's Landing. Oh wait, the bear was at Harrenhal. Now I remember. Is that the game we are playing? Tyrion rubbed at his scarred nose. He had nothing to lose by telling Oberyn the truth. There was a bear in Harrenhal, and it did kill Sir Amory Lorch. How sad for him, said the Red Viper. And for you. Do all noseless men lie so badly, I wonder? I am not lying. Sir Amory dragged Princess Rhaenys out from under her father's bed and stabbed her to death. He had some men-at-arms with him, but I do not know their names. He leaned forward. It was Sir Gregor Clegane who smashed Prince Aegon's head against a wall and raped your sister Elia, with his blood and brains still on his hands. What's this now? Truth from a Lannister. Oberyn smiled coldly. Your father gave the commands, yes? No. He spoke the lie without hesitation, and never stopped to ask himself why he should. The Dornishman raised one thin, black eyebrow. Such a dutiful son, and such a very feeble lie. It was Lord Tywin who presented my sister's children to King Robert, all wrapped up in crimson Lannister cloaks. Perhaps you ought to have this discussion with my father. He was there. I was at the rock, and still so young, I thought the thing between my legs was only good for pissing. Yes, but you are here now, and in some difficulty, I would say. Your innocence may be as plain as the scar on your face, but it will not save you. No more than your father will. The Dornish prince smiled. But I might. You? Tyrion studied him. You are one judge in three. How could you save me? Not as your judge. As your champion. And that is A Storm of Swords Tyrion 9. What did y'all make of this Oh, one? good stuff. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> that is a... Agreed. That is a such a wonderful summary of such a wonderful chapter. And look, so as our silly podcast might demonstrate... There are a lot of lawyerly dilemmas and lawyerly chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. A lot. We might even be doing an episode on, you know, that soon on how many or the lawyerliest chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. But when you do ask that question to most people as to which chapter has the most 
lawyerium, lawyerdom, lawyerdom. I think that's the term. Lawyership. Yeah, mm-hmm. lawyership. Yes. This chapter is at the top of the list for most people. So back in 2020, um, Mary and I did an episode on this chapter with Stanford Fraser, who is a so long so ago. long ago. <laughs> and Stanford is is a public defender, and so we brought him in because neither Mary or I practice criminal law. We named this episode. My Cousin Kevin, which is a My Cousin Vinny reference. Um, and we went through this chapter line by line from a legal perspective. So if you're looking for like sort of a granular presentation there, I encourage you to go back and check that out. I think it's episode 11 for us. Regardless, <clears throat> we were able to do that episode because this chapter gives us so much information about trial procedure here in a way that no other chapter in the books does. And... In the process, George is kind of putting on his TV writer hat, doing his best version of Law and Order Westerosi Victims Units. It is like sort of a perfect episode of television written in a chapter. It's great. It's wonderful. And moreover, in in a series that is, is at least in part about the broad question of what justice means... This chapter is here to lay out in excruciating and comical detail what justice absolutely is not. (laughs) Because the reader knows going into this trial that Tyrion is innocent. And a few chapters after this trial, you you will get to it in a few weeks, the reader will find out who actually killed Joff. So reading this chapter and seeing the myriad of ways that Tyrion gets absolutely fucking railroaded into appearing guilty as hell is an exercise in frustration for everybody involved, especially for us lawyers. This trial is basically a smorgasbord, an absolute litany of civil rights and criminal procedure violations, and it's all designed to put our brave, noble, and absolutely pure hero Tyrion Lannister (laughs) in a real tight spot. He's in a real tight spot. Tyrion has no lawyer, no witnesses, no trial plan, no discovery, no chance, and no choice until the end where he's offered this spark of hope by the hottest man in Westeros, (laughs) Oberyn Martell, just the sexiest motherfucker. It is A-plus work, George, just great storytelling, great drama, even if the legal procedureing is a little, you know, suboptimal. <laughs> uh, it's it's funny. Like I am so my emotion as I was listening to this chapter was that I was envious. Like one, I'm envious of how skilled Martin is, but I'm also envious at the pace of the trial. <laughs> um, so Martin, he definitely pil- pulls off portraying. Not just a trial, but also the interwoven political strategy and makes manages to make it feel brisk. It's a it's a page turner, I think. And that's so different from my experiences like a civil trial lawyer in the real world, where trials can be months and the pre-trial period mm-hmm. decades. Uh so there's a a real kind of I think excitement to this chapter. And It still holds true, I think, to the essence of what makes a trial. And that's the interaction between the law's moral commandments and its procedural vagaries. The promise of justice, sometimes delivered, but more often obscured through the courtroom's form of storytelling. 
And I, I agree with you, Clint, that the heart of this chapter for me is how unfair the whole thing is and how we come away from it at the end knowing that Oberyn is the better bet. Tyrion's inability to cross-examine witnesses or call his own witnesses, you know, all that lawyer procedural stuff, yeah, that's all problematic. But for me, the real masterstroke lies in what Martin has Cersei do. Just like a good trial lawyer today, she uses her witnesses not just to outright lie, they do plenty of that, uh, but mostly they craft a selective version of the truth. And what Cersei does is Trial Advocacy 101. And it's often still built on the same kind of evidence that we would admit in court now. There's expert testimony from maesters on the cause of death, testimony from Westerosi cops on Tyron's motive. It's, it's the kind of thing that ought to make us question not just Westeros' system of justice, but how we think about telling stories about the guilty in the first place. If, as I say all the time, A Song of Ice and Fire is a story about how we tell stories, this chapter is a farce of how lawyers tell stories in court. This run of Tyrion chapters, as Emmett mentioned during the Purple Wedding, is the best stuff in the final throes of A Storm of Swords. George really gets to fuck around with genre here. Murder mystery and duels and prison breaks and those others. But here we get a court procedural. His very own witness for the prosecution, or a time to kill, or a few good men. And a few good men dominate this chapter. Well, not good in the moral sense, <laughs> but good in the character sense. Long, lingering background characters such as Kevan and Braun are perfectly captured. Tyrion himself is finding out for all the fucking around he's done. And perhaps, most of all, the relatively new and barely seen Oberyn Martell comes into focus. The chapter's centerpiece seems to be the elaborate show trial at its center, perhaps George's best invocation of the performance of power, but as so often happens with A Song of Ice and Fire, it's the smaller character moments at the margins that make it sing. In a way, this is the definitive Tyrion chapter. Yeah. An endless parade of public humiliation for our poor, put-upon protagonist, in which seemingly the entire city of King's Landing shows up to tell him he sucks and should <laughs> die. All for a crime we know he didn't commit. But we also know he really, really wanted to and kind of wishes he had, which is where, for me, a lot of the, the tension and the depth comes from. Tyrion's internal conflict as he tries and fails to stop himself from behaving like the most obviously guilty man in Westeros. George keeps reminding us that perspective is everything. With one hand, he makes us furious at the naked injustice on display, but with the other hand, he reminds us that if we were just up in the gallery rather than in Tyrion's head, we could easily, easily come away thinking he did it. And that multiplicity produces one of the richest, densest chapters in the book. Like you said, every every character gives you something to chew on. Really, the only bad thing I can say about Tyrion 9 is that it's not Tyrion 10. And the only bad thing I can say about Tyrion 10 is that it's not Tyrion 11. This is, this is peak Tyrion for sure. This is the good shit. I agree. This is the good shit. You've heard about Tiana in the tower, but how about Tyrion in the tower? Ooh. Hey, hey. Oh. Oh, whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> I don't want to talk about Tyrion. Well, not yet anyway, but rather Kevin Lannister, who perhaps unexpectedly plays a critical role in Tyrion 9. With our point of view confined to a cell, Kevon becomes Tyrion's connection to the outside world, to the news, to the pre-trial preparations, to his father. The trio of judges, Cersei's champion, 
All of that, Kevin pretty much lays out what's to come in this and Tyrion's next chapter to the T. And Bronn gives us the other half when he pretends the end of the Mountain versus Viper grudge match. But I think it's Kevin's rapport with Tyrion and the backgrounded relationship with Tywin that really deserves focus. The latter we can get to a bit later this episode. For now, Tyrion and Kevin clearly get along, something we've seen before in the story, and it's no mistake why he's the liaison now. There's a sadness in Kevin regarding Tyrion's fate. He'd love to believe Tyrion is innocent, beyond just being a black mark on the family. This is one of Tyrion's few healthy familial relationships, unlike the ones he has with his sister or his father, more like the one he'll soon throw away with his brother. So despite all of Kevan's faults, it's still a meaningful and rare connection for Tyrion, so for even him to be doubtful of Tyrion's innocence has to hurt Tyrion that much more. Yeah, Kevan, I was coming by a couple times throughout this chapter. He's doing the he's doing the just visiting, like a Monopoly. You got the jail, where you get sent to if you get the wrong card. Then you have like the the petty bitchy little outside of that that square that says just visiting. So if like other players just land, they're going around. They're not in jail. They're just visiting. If only t- every time my mom would land on that square, she'd go just visiting in that voice. And me and my brother would just go, "We're so angry right now." If only Tyrion had a get out of jail free card, it would be fine. If only. I think, yeah, I'll have to stack up on those with Danny. But yeah, that's that's Kevon's job in this chapter. He's And this is how he always sees himself. He's Wait, the... isn't it Jamie? Isn't Jamie? <laughs> yes. I guess so. Yes, it is. Finally shows up with that. That's what Jamie <laughs> held on to it all the way from River Run, this one little little community <laughs> chest card. All the way from Park Place, place <laughs> if you will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now he needs to just map all of Westeros onto the board. Anyway, it's going to be a whole episode now. <laughs> But yeah, this is that's how uh, how Uncle Kevon has always seemed to see himself, that he's the reasonable man. He's the one who's going to keep peace at Thanksgiving. And so, of course, he's the one relative who will still talk to Tyrion, even though he still is so disappointed. I wish I could believe that, Tyrion, the ultimate disappointed relative or disappointed teacher line. I wish I could believe your obvious bullshit, but I, I simply cannot. <laughs> and George, I like how George undercuts that that supposedly neutral position in ways large and small throughout this chapter. And it's linked to his overall deconstruction of Tywin's persona because Kevon functionally speaks for Tywin here. And right away we see in this chapter this this presumption of of guilt that's gonna gonna turn on Tyrion and prevent him from from escaping or, or even accurately sticking up for himself in this trial. Tyrion, Kevon says, if you are indeed innocent of Joffrey's death, you should have no difficulty proving it at trial. So that's his job. He has to prove he's innocent. And not even like in terms of coming up with an alibi, because he was there. He just didn't do it. And that's definitely an opening line written, I think, for a modern audience, especially a modern American audience, who's going to see that line and go, oh, you have to prove your innocence. That's not right. That sets the tone that this is this is not a fair trial, that this this game is rigged. And George wants us to feel that even putting aside that we know Tyrion is innocent, even knowing that, it's still off. Yeah, and you you highlight the presumption of guilt, and that is absolutely dead on. But I want to note something um, that goes kind of deeper than that. There, there are we can get kind of granular about like burdens of proof and how um, in the sort of American criminal justice system, there's this idea of like beyond a reasonable doubt, and that does not. That's not what's going on here at all. It seems more like a preponderance of the evidence where it's like 50% plus one. But I, I really want to note how um, each of the three panelists who get chosen to be judges is intensely, intensely biased and should be conflicted out in any reasonable system. So they say justice belongs to the crown originally, but since the king is dead, uh, then it falls to the hand. Um, and then we get this sort of tripart- 
type judge system. And we only get that because Tywin is, for some reason, concerned about the appearance of impropriety. Since I am the grandsire of the decedent, therefore, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask two other people to make sure that there isn't an appearance of impropriety. So funny. Um, because everything out this, everything else about this trial is improper, but Tywin didn't want people to think that he might be biased. Heaven for Fen. <laughs> and of course, even Tyrion notes that two of the three judges have obvious bias. He, he notes that his father was Joff's grandsire and Mace was Joff's good father, which I, I love, I love that phrasing. Um, but Tyrion neglects to mention that Oberyn has basically made it his life's goal to kill Lannisters whenever possible. Like, that's his whole raison d'etre. Um, and of course, all three of them, all three of the judges were actual witnesses to the alleged slaying. They could be called as witnesses. There's so much bias. It's so improper. None of these people should be judges. This whole <laughs> damn court is out of order. That's what Did I'm you saying. order you the code them. red? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so Tyrion stares at the blank sheet of paper for witnesses, which reminds me a lot of Jamie in his next chapter, who uh, fixates on his meager entry in the White Book. For Jamie, that mostly empty page symbolizes a black, uh, a blank canvas, a new leaf, a chance to turn his story around. The very same blank page for Tyrion, on the other hand, symbolizes a sealed fate, a lack of hope for deliverance. Eventually, Sansa is the name he's able to write down, and we can feel Tyrion's bitterness at her boil over. Even his phrasing that his sheet of paper was still a maiden feels like Tyrion's twisted resentment of how his second marriage went down, though at least he has enough awareness to call her his child bride within his stream of consciousness. There's a certain narrative beauty to this dilemma, a lot of tensions at work, which Clint had mentioned earlier. We know Tyrion and Sansa are innocent, even the first time through, but Tyrion has every reason in the world to believe Sansa is the killer, even if the how eludes him. But the real twist is, would finding Sansa, or even getting a confession out of her, actually benefit Tyrion? Once again, the only united future Tyrion and Sansa could have would be sharing the Executioner's block. And he's just kind of turning around on himself here because no one can find Sansa. He doesn't know if she's involved. He doesn't know what she would say. And this is where I think we're reaching a tipping point where Tyrion is starting to uh, hate his own brain. Like he's not he's not enjoying hanging out with his thoughts anymore. <laughs> Same. Which he used to it. in the first couple of books, right? Like he used to like Tyrion was having fun in his inner monologue. He was poking fun at everyone. Like when he talks about sharpening his mind like a weapon to John, like he enjoys, he enjoyed that. He enjoyed rhetoric and, and thought and intellect. And now, now his brain is just his only companion as his life falls apart. And it's starting to hurt, which is, we get a lot more of a dance when Tyrion is just like, like a Homer in the Simpsons. He points to his brain. Look, I'll just, I'll get back to killing you with booze. <laughs> that's what, that's what, that's the mode Tyrion's in. And here he's just like, he's just chasing his tail. And he thinks about it. he understands obviously why Sansa would kill Joffrey. Plenty of motive there, and he still feels that that need to defend her. And there's that moment where he thinks that even though she has the motive and that she you know vanished afterwards, that certainly seems guilty. But where'd she get poison? And wouldn't someone else have to be in on it with her? And that right there is the the closest anyone on the Lannister side gets to realizing that there is another party involved here, namely Littlefinger and the Tyrells, of course. But just like how Tyrion can't quite make sense of Littlefinger's corruption earlier in the book. He misses the boat here because, yeah, he's distracted by resentment and the reality that Cersei doesn't care either way, so his position is what it is. And speaking of Sansa, there's that 
there's that incredible little moment from Kevon when he says, yeah, if we find Sansa, she can join you. I find I have no problem with husband and wife offering each other comfort in this tower. So it's just, just the, the layers of messed up oh, yeah. to that. It's so good. It's like, like well, don't worry if we find your child bride and toss her into jail with you. You guys can comfort each other. How sweet. How familial. Sure, he packed himself It'll on the back so for that It'll be so comforting for her, right. I'm sure. She'd love that. Like, she's going to get thrown into cell and see Tyrion's there. Okay, everything's going to be fine. My lord husband will defend me. But yeah, and yeah, that, that blank sheet definitely speaks to where Tyrion's head is at and just how alone he is as he speaks. Who will speak for me? And uh, if Tyrion was, yeah, not so self-pitying, he probably could come up with a couple of people to speak for him, but... It's kind of a self-fulfilling thing for Tyrion at this point, where he feels isolated. He feels he's always going to be isolated, and so he keeps uh, isolating himself. Tyrion's isolation here, it it prompted me on what I think is an illuminating, but also very strange digression. <laughs> oh, good. So, My favorite comment. So they, they invited us on. Um, they knew that they were exactly. what they were getting. I know. <laughs> so please bear with me as I kind of walk you through uh the brain process that that led me to this to, to where I'm going. All right, so Tyrion's trial comes on the heels of his victory at the Blackwater. I mean, part of what's so fascinating about Tyrion's position now is that it's a huge fall from grace from where he was in the last book, right? So he has this tremendous accomplishment. He saves the city, and then what happens to him? He's removed from office. And this led me down an interesting parallel, okay? Uh, One thing I love about A Song of Ice and Fire is you can always compare anyone in A Song of Ice and Fire to like a million historical figures, right? And so Tyrion is this example of someone who's successful as a wartime leader, but ends up becoming terribly sort of unpopular after that war is over. So that kind of reminded me of Winston Churchill for the reason that <laughs> I am, I've been listening to a Winston Churchill uh, biography. And so here we go. Let me, let me walk you through this digression. Look, the connection is that Churchill was famously voted out of office after World War II. Churchill is like not my favorite person in history. So please don't think that I'm a Churchill worshiper here, but he's such an indelible figure in Western culture that I think folks like can't help but write echoes of him. In fact, he's in a recent set of Wild Guards novels. Interesting. Um, As a fictionalized version of himself. And so for me, this trial, it feels like this referendum on Tyrion politically and personally. And for me, it calls to mind whether or not the very things that make him successful as hand, intuitive as a leader, do they doom his ultimate failure? So again, here's a place where the Churchill connection kind of came about in a way that I think is super relevant in a literary way. Um, One of his recent biographers called Churchill's tragic flaw disdain his disdain and contempt for the people around him. And I think at this point in the story, that's arguably Tyrion's. I mean, the problem Tyrion has with being put on trial is that he just can't stand the people around him. And it it boils out. It's obvious. And it kind of gets to the core of what makes Tyrion compelling as a character, because so many of Tyrion's witticisms are also about his disdain for other people. And that also drove a lot of Churchill's most famous quotes, too. Uh, 
famous Churchill quote, uh, he has all of the virtues I dislike and none of the vices I admire. Uh, someone famously told Churchill, if I were married to you, I'd put poison in your coffee. And Churchill replied, if I were married to you, I'd drink it. Uh, <laughs> those are, those are good lines. Those are good lines. Tyrion would say both of yes. those things, right? That kind of sharp, like mean wit, it's a core part of his character. And I think there's a sort of particular character type that that works for. There's a lot of other similarities between Churchill and Tyrion, too. They have this association with drinking heavily, heavily, right? They're from aristocratic families. And most importantly, they had famously fucked up relationships with their politician fathers. Uh, and if you don't, you should totally look up Churchill's relationship with his dad, who may be literally as fucked up as Tywin, coming for me. Like, that means quite a bit. So... Tyrion, you know, he's a dwarf who's treated harshly by family and society, and we have a lot of reasons to relate to his disdain, you know, for Tyrion thinking of himself as someone who persists in his infamy. Um, but that kind of attitude, it really cuts both ways. And that's what we see boiling over in this chapter and in the next one when Tyrion thinks, you know, I wish I had enough poison for you all. But I think the repression of his disdain in this chapter is almost more compelling for me because we're, we know it's going to boil over. We know that Tyrion is going to, if not condemn himself, have some kind of outburst as we watch him not be able to keep his mouth shut. And I, I just, I love it. I find it to be really, really compelling about this chapter. As a lawyer, that stuff is witness prep 101, okay? You look like a total jerk when you argue with the lawyer that's cross-examining you. And if you talk out of turn during someone else's testimony, you're in contempt. And your lawyer, they immediately need a cigarette break even if they don't smoke. Speaking from personal experience. Um, you know, of course, like, I would lose it too if I didn't have a chance to tell my side. But I just think there's a really interesting insight into into Tyrion that we get from watching him from his own point of view sit through, I think, what you call the ultimate Tyrion chapter from people just <laughs> shitting on him for, for this long. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was interesting to bring up the, the Churchill parallel because I think that it speaks a lot to how we think about leaders and also the kinds of characters we think are interesting. Um, like we find Churchill to be, as a culture, we find Churchill to be such an interesting character. I think in part because of his disdain and for the rest of humanity. The same is true of Tyrion. And that's what makes this chapter work. His own kind of messed up isolation from everyone else. That disdain you mentioned, I think, is really on point. You can definitely see that. Uh, in this chapter and in, in his sense of humor and the contempt that comes out and the way where he's starting to realize how much it hurts him. Like when he makes the joke about the bakers and the pigeon pie at the start of the trial and he hears people laughing, he goes, uh, uh oh, <laughs> I don't want that. I don't want to look like a joke. That actually hurts me in this situation. He's having to restrain himself. And we do see him as a political operator, kind of the old school Tyrion at the start of the chapter when his first few lines of dialogue are all questions. He's in Q&A mode with Kevon. He's, he's probing. He's trying to find out what he can do, what he can get away with, what he's up against. 
And you have that kind of intellectual tearing on the surface and then all these emotions he's just trying to trying to keep at bay uh, right underneath. And uh, like I said earlier, he's kind of he's given up his his life of the mind, his kind of the enjoyment and pleasure he would take in in puzzles like doing his one, two, three thing with the counselors where he gave them the different information to see which one was the traitor. That, that, that not only helped his position, he really enjoyed it. And that kind of joy has all leached out of it and left him in this much worse position. And he thinks about trying trauma combat like he did in the veil, but what worked in the veil won't work here because his judges are more on the ball than Lysa, which is not a hard bar to reach, but still, <laughs> they do reach it. Yes. Yeah. Tywin has powerful allies as his judges. Cersei has Gregor as her champion. The odds are stacked against him much more than they were before, and now it's extra sting of the tail. Their odds are stacked against him by his own family. So Bronn, like Kevan, gets to shine in this chapter, letting all the work George put into him pay off, especially as Bronn's going to operate off-page going forward. George lets us know where he's going. Stokeworth, and Lawless's bed, and in a macabre way, his fucking with Cersei in A Feast for Crows is one of that book's highlights. But here, in this scene, Bronn is an immaculate rogue, quite the mercenary, as Princess Leia would say. He walks in all dripped out in new fineries, and, and one of the reasons I'm so defensive of George's overly descriptive passages on food and clothing is how they can reflect class, and Bronn showing up like a peacock lets the reader know he's got a new money line. Yet he doesn't stop hustling. He's got that dog in him, giving Tyrion a chance to somehow promise something more, something better than the lordship and castle in the warm south and the warm, warm embrace of Lala Stokeworth. Bronn has also always been wealthy with wit, noting that Tyrion's sister is also a Lannister, and being afraid of Gregor Clegane is in fact the only sane way to be. George is wringing all the cleverness out of Bronn while he still can before he walks out of Tyrion's life. And Tyrion, to his credit, gets it. Bronn is doing exactly what Tyrion has wanted Bronn to do this whole time, to be this whole time. It just so happens he doesn't get to be the sellsword's benefactor this time out. While Bronn's latest trophies are a bribe from Cersei, it is worth remembering that Bronn was able to transcend his social status to climb the ladder because he was specifically good at doing violence. He left that in at the crossroads following one High Lord or lady rather, imprisoning another, these are the types of people who could utilize his skill in violence and in turn profit himself. It's all clear. I mean, Tyrion was once that person. He was once the patron for Bronn and no longer. And it's this is a parallel scene to what we saw between these two and towards the beginning of the book, right after the battle when Bronn came to to get uh, Tyrion out of his cell and said, uh, like, yeah, missed a bit shaving, huh? But it's worse now because he's just 100% bought. He's moving on up the ladder again. And yeah, he has that perfect game plan that he'll execute uh, offstage in A Feast for Crows. And what I really like about this scene is is how obvious it is that the relationship is over, that Tyrion is not in a position to help out Bronn anymore. Like, even if Bronn was Tyrion's champion and won the battle and they both got out, it's not like Tyrion talks about, you know, I'll marry Sansa and give you part of the North. Like, that's never going to happen. Tyrion <laughs> is, is politically done within the Lannister regime, even if he wins this trial. And so, like, the question of the scene becomes, why is this conversation happening at all? Like, why why is Bronn in this room? Clearly, they still have a connection, or he wouldn't have listened when Podrick begged. He wouldn't name the kid Tyrion in A Feast for Crows. They did make a little connection along the way. It's just it's just so small and frail in a world which in which Tyrion can't keep his promises. And this really hits home for him, the realization that it was nothing that he ever had was ever his. All his pathetic little offers, it was all ever built on the family name, and the family can just take that name away from him. 
Tyrion isn't afforded a Kingsguard escort to the trial. That would be improper, according to Tywin, <laughs> and propriety is what this is all about. Tyrion's trial is a show trial, a concept given to us by our lord and savior, Vladimir Lenin. Sorry, I have to balance out some of that Churchill talk earlier. <laughs> show, show trials are very much meant to be retributive and for the purposes of making an example, usually with incredibly trumped up evidence to the point of absurdity. The outcome is already determined, the fix is in. The question becomes then, what exactly are the Lannisters trying to show? Who is this demonstration for and why? After the Blackwater, Tywin trotted into the Great Hall to be made Hand of the King, and Joffrey consolidated his rule with a betrothal, betrothal to Marjorie Tyrell. It was a message to the kingdoms that the usurpers had been defeated, and the Lannister Tyrell hegemon had a firm grasp on power. The royal wedding was supposed to be another performance of the sort, a continuation of that messaging, made real by the lavish expenditures on food and entertainment. But the death of the bridegroom monarch has revealed weakness, a possible chink in the armor. Before their enemies can regroup and exploit this, the Lannisters and Tyrells have circled the wagons in order to ensure the, rel to ensure the realm their power is still secure. The plan for Marjorie and Tommen to wed is also part of this performance. By dealing swiftly and decisively against the quote-unquote perpetrator of the death of Joffrey, everyone can once again fully buy into the hegemon as they did at the beginning of this book. One of the easiest ways to make that point is to dump all political grievances on one person, to make the rot of the end of Robert's reign and all of Joffrey's attributable to Tyrion. And this already has footing in the popular mindset, lest we forget that whole demon monkey thing and the bread riots. And as Tyrion himself will note, his own words and deeds do him no favors unless they come with the interiority that the reader is privy to, which unfortunately the people of King's Landing are not. We should also give a nod to the person who is doing the dumping, that is to say Cersei, Tyrion's beloved sister. As Tyrion notes himself, she really has the show part down, as she perfectly stacks the witnesses from very credible to less credible to not credible at all. In tandem, they are able to corroborate enough of Tyrion's actions to cast him in a bad light with little doubt. Balon Swan makes Meryn Trant go down easier, which makes the Kettleblacks go down easier. And while it's not the main point of this performance, Cersei is able to launder the reputation of these Kettleblacks while she's here. As her own twin noted, there's no honor in being a Kettleblack, and no one really knows who the fuck they are anyways. But marching them into the Great Hall, all prim and proper, Osmond in his Kingsguard attire no less, and having them actively aligned with the crown makes their presence known. Uh, starting with Balin Swan, good move on Cersei's part. Cersei, I think, I think uh, in terms of how she's written, is her competence is inconsistent. Like I think in like in book one, she's making some really powerful, sneaky, sly moves behind the scenes, and then when Tyrion shows up, maybe it's just a POV thing that Tyrion just knows his sister better than other people, and she kind of lets down, and not really lets down her guard, but just lets her personality spill all over the place when it's just her and Tyrion. Same thing when we get uh, just her POV. But in terms of how she she puts this trial together, starting with Balin Swan, uh, is great because everyone likes Balin Swan, and I like that how George positions him politically and, and uh, shows how like being just the nicest most honest guy in town is kind of a weakness in a situation like this because it lets people use you for that purpose we're going to see that again when cersei sends balin to arrange uh tristan martell to get killed down in dorne and you get the sense balin swan just goes along with it because he got told to and he doesn't know what to do about it 
And that's George sucker punching as well, starting with the truth, starting with someone we like, starting with someone's on, on Tyrion's side, and then just gradually mixing in the lies as Tyrion also realizes uh, Varys is doing. And George is definitely taking aim at the Kingsguard as an institution here. That's why he emphasizes Osmond Kettleblack's perfect snowy white uh, angelic cloak as he lies his ass off. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's so it's this is where George really starts frustrating you, showing us how the Kingsguard are leaving in only the most damaging details. And that it's great. It locks us into Tyrion's perspective because we read those chapters. We know what happened and we just want to shake everyone by the shoulders and tell them. I like that you use the word frustrating because that is exactly <laughs> what my experience is uh, reading this chapter. And it maps perfectly onto how I feel when I am watching a nightmare opposing counsel (laughs) tell lies that I know are not true. I mean, Cersei is exactly the kind of person that, that we would compare the most frustrating opposing counsel. I have like five or six, but really one in mind (laughs) right now. Um, And I cannot stress enough that like my emotional experience of reading this chapter is exactly like when you are a lawyer watching someone else And you can tell, you can do just like we are doing here when we are privy to the, you know, to the what's going on behind the scenes, right? You can grit your teeth because you know that you can distinguish the truths from the lies and watch the way in which they're manipulated. And that's the same position that the jury in as a lawyer at a trial. Um, And so I think it's really masterfully done because it allows uh, just allows George to show the building blocks of well this is how you create a show trial that's designed to make this point the other thing that I just wanted to bring up too is in addition to being a show trial this is a public spectacle and the reason I want to make this distinction is that I think it really matters that what Cersei uh, is doing here is trying to get everyone in the public to place their feelings of anger on Tyrion, right? There's a way in which this is a public performance, not just of propaganda that's supporting the Lannister regime, because I think that's kind of what Tywin has in mind. But in Tyrion, there's this almost like there's this psychological displacement of anger that's going on with with Cersei here. Uh, and I think that the way that Cersei does that tells so much about her personality, but also I think about the way we watch trials today. Like if you're to watch like, uh, you know, the way that folks watch the Johnny Depp trial or whatever, the way we interact with those things is less about the power of the state and more about this kind of inner psychological impulses and desires to see certain kinds of people lose or certain kinds of people be punished. Uh, and that's what I see going on here. You, you talk about the experience of reading this chapter as a lawyer is very similar to the experience of sitting through a trial as a lawyer and that it it's absolutely true um, it's probably extra frustrating because the trial procedure here is so fucked up and so alien to what modern readers are going to look at. Um, and just like being in an arbitration. Oh yeah, sure. It's all <laughs> Mary. Yes. Uh, yes. So, okay. 
<clears throat> um, we most of the episode that we did on this chapter was kind of a line by line. This is how the trial would work um, in sort of a modern political or a modern American legal context. And so I'll give sort of like a thumbnail sketch of some of the things that we talked about. I also did an essay. It was like I think the second essay I ever wrote was about this trial, and I compared it to like. Uh, Pete Campbell saying whether or not uh, it was like the Westerosi criminal procedure was great, Bob. And it was, you know, mostly not great, Bob. Uh, but so there's a couple features that were kind of good. Okay. So we get um, this discussion where Kevon tells Tyrion, hey, just write down your list of witnesses um, and I will go and get them for you. And that's what we lawyers would call compulsory process in an American political in the American system, that right is protected in the Sixth Amendment. All of these are mostly Sixth Amendment um, protections. And it's basically, um, if you are accused of a crime and you think there's a witness out there that can help you prove your case, then we will use the power of the state to go and get that person and bring them to trial. It's called compulsory process. So Westeros has compulsory process, which is good. That's actually pretty good. Um, And then... The other thing that I think is pretty good is that we know at least nobles and knights have the right to claim trial by combat. Now, trial by combat is not good, necessarily, but it's a right, which is good. It's good to have an option, I suppose. Those are the two things that I can point to that are good. Everything else I'm going to mention is bad. Um, so also in the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution is this concept of speedy trial. Okay. And there's this interesting part at the beginning of this chapter where Kevon says, well, you better think of your witnesses soon because trial is in three days. And Tyrion is like, what? Uh, no. Can we wait longer? And they're like, nope. Um, and so in American um, law, you have the right to a speedy and public trial. And so one might think, okay, well, this is a speedy trial. So that checks that box. But no, you would be wrong because... Um, the American speedy trial right is enjoyed by the accused. It is waivable. So here, if Tyrion had the Sixth Amendment trial, uh, Sixth Amendment speedy trial right, he would waive that right and say, no, no, give me more time. But he can't do that here because it's a show trial and everything we've talked about so far. Then we get to the real big problems. And this is like the biggest problem. One of the, there are two, two of the big, well, there's so many big problems. <laughs> no, no right to an attorney, which is, you know, mm-hmm. bad. Kind of a big one. Kind of mm-hmm. a big one. Having an attorney is really important to help you navigate through this stuff. Tyrion could talk to an attorney. Who wrote that comment? An attorney? An attorney? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I wrote that comment. Having an attorney is good. You may quote me on that. Uh, secondly, um, and this is really frustrating. He, he has no right to confront his witnesses in every, the right to confrontation is so fundamental to not just like American legal systems, but to Western legal systems. It was, it was the part of the Roman legal systems going all the way back to like fucking Hammurabi, like all the way back. The right to confront your witnesses is so foundational. And yet Westeros is like, nope, Tyrion can't ask any questions of any of the people. We're not going to let you do it. So infuriating. It's a, it's, it's like the kind of, uh, just drives me crazy because it would be one thing if after 
<clears throat> whichever Kettle Black testifies, I don't know. I don't pay attention to, to which one is which. Um, he would be able to come up and say, well, why was I talking to Cersei and telling her that I would get back at her at some point? And then he would have to say, well, because Cersei kidnapped Ali Aya and did some terrible things. Um, that would be one thing, but he isn't even given that. In addition, as as we've kind of, you know, talked about in general, um, going into the trial, he didn't know, he had no right of discovery or disclosure, or right to object to any of the testimony. He didn't know who was on the witness list until the day before. He didn't know how what they were going to testify for. Varys shows up with fucking documents, and he didn't know <laughs> what the documents said. He didn't get a chance to look at the documents beforehand. This is so... This is, like, absolutely alien to pretty much any modern um, trial system. And it all comes to the overall point that... Emmett mentioned earlier, which is that the odds are stacked against Tyrion. This is um, the difference between the resources between these two sides could not be more stark. You have um, the actual power of the crown, the most powerful political entity, marshalling all of its resources against somebody who is locked in a cell with no bail, without the ability to get out and talk to anybody. Um, and he just has to fucking deal with it without lawyers or discovery or disclosures or any of it. And so, you know, it, I mean, this we've talked about how this is a show trial. We've talked about how this is a trial that, um, you know, is is written for drama and not for justice or procedure. But the I, I guess the overall totality of the circumstances make this just sort of like the pinnacle demonstration of a show trial, of um, a farce, of a legal fiction. And man, feels good to get all that shit out. I want to say really, really quickly that all of what you just said is why that first line of the chapter makes me want to punch Kevin <laughs> yes. Lannister in yes. the face. <laughs> like, it's such a good line in part because we say it all the time, right? Like, literally people say it all the time. Oh, well, if you're innocent, you should have no trouble proving it. Oh, f well, look! <laughs> look at how easy it is to take away someone's ability to prove that they didn't do it. It's not hard at all. Um, and And that's why... All of these rights that Clint's talking about are so important. That's why this feels so bad for modern readers. Um, and that's why we all, that's why we as attorneys and we as people should care about this kind of dorky procedural stuff because that's what makes someone be able to confront the power of the state. Uh, and, and that's, that's necessary. It's so important. Dorks are crucial. For resisting the power of the state, I agree. A dance with dorks, my favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> that night, Tyrion thinks of Tysha and about sweet lies and bitter truths, all foreshadowing his final chapter in this book. George has always played with the idea of truth and lies, and when which serves which. The lo the load bearing mystery of R plus L equals J has Ned lying all over the place, and a lie not unkindly meant is something that comes up in Sansa's chapters. This trial here, ostensibly meant to get to the truth of Joffrey's murder, is built on lies to Tartarian. 
the end of this chapter, we'll see Tyrion be praised by Oberyn for telling the truth about San- or Gregor Clegane, but Tyrion will turn around and immediately lie about his father's involvement in Elia's death and that of her children. And while I don't want to give away Tyrion 11, but it's Jamie's desire to give truth to the Taisha incident that sets Tyrion off when perhaps he when he perhaps would have preferred the sweet lie that she never actually loved him. The messy concept of truth and the inability to strictly moralize around it as done in more didactic works is part of what makes A Song of Ice and Fire so fascinating. So I don't really have any strict notes about this next part. I just have written Grand Maester Pycelle is a fugly bitch over and over again with a lot of expletives. <laughs> he, uh, he, that sums it up. He made out with a hot dog. That's true. <laughs> Gotta truth. keep your burn book handy. Varus always keeps his burn book handy. Yeah. It's it's damning. It convinces Kevon, like, why did you take Pycelle's potions if not to use them? But... But there's just no evidence here, as, as Tyrion points out to Pycelle's face, like, hey, among all these poisons you've listed, you've made me look really bad, but you haven't addressed the actual central issue. Uh, obviously, so clearly driven by the personalities involved. Pycelle's uh, loathing of Tyrion after Tyrion threw him in jail and, and cut off his beard, and then feels the need to, to kiss Joffrey's ass posthumously <laughs> to talk about him as the, the noblest child. What I love about the, the noblest child ever put on this earth is that no one in this room believes that. No one. Cersei doesn't even believe that. Yeah. She's probably the closest. <laughs> Tywin definitely doesn't believe that. No. And Tywin is the one Pycelle is mostly kissing up to. So who's that for? It's just for like, like you know, it's for the record in almost kind of like an ambient sense. It's just to establish what this is. This is Tyrion on trial for killing the best person ever. <laughs> and so... It may, it just it it just unleashes the tide because then you get all this this like list of witnesses, and Tyena Tyena uh, Merryweather, who will be important in later books, stands out as the, as the only one really telling a flat out lie that she saw Tyrion put something in the cup. Obviously not true, but then you get a bunch of of sycophants who are just backing up the the party line about what they saw Tyrion do, most of which is true. And you have um one uh, detail I noticed on this read was that a couple of Jano Slint's kids are among the witnesses. Yeah. They, like Pycelle, they have a very specific grievance against Tyrion and might be willing to get on board just to take him down. Yeah, I noticed that too. That was something that I never noticed until this one. And I was like, oh, oh, remember Tyrion too of A Clash of Kings, where <laughs> Tyrion was like, I'm just going to send you to the fucking wall, dude. Um, and, and that settled that problem forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, here is the, the, it's the reaping sowing tweet. Tyrion is like, it's, sowing. What the fuck, man? Uh, yeah. Yeah, the Machiavelli problem of you don't want to leave your enemies with enough power to strike back at you. Yes. Which is the problem with Pycelle. Like, I, again, I hate Pycelle. Everyone hates Pycelle. But if you're going to, Tyrion should have either uh, let him alone or removed him from King's Landing entirely. Absolutely. It's like, leave him in jail where it's like, you know, eventually Tywin's going to come and let him out, right? And yeah. then he's going to have nothing but bad things to say about you. So uh, Tyrion, I definitely think George wanted to have the sensation of Tyrion setting himself up for a fall that in part he's being railroaded, but in part also all the chickens are coming home to roost uh, with regards to the last book. Yeah, yeah. And you you mentioned Tyena, and she is clearly lying. I also think that, again, whichever kettle luck testifies that Joff 
you know, told him that he was afraid of Tyrion, pretty clearly lying to. Oh, yeah. Like, we know that Joff would not say that. Like, he would never... Even the language, he says, Good Sir Osmond, guard me well. I fear my uncle loves me not. <laughs> yeah. None of those words. Uh-uh. Have, <laughs> it's like it's like when you see an occasional, like, Trump post that has, like, five-syllable words, and it's right. like, that was not that was not you. <laughs> that is absolutely... Nice try. Nice try, yeah. Um, yeah, no, my, uh, my favorite thing about the testimony with Pycelle, um, or the the back and forth with Pycelle is that mm-hmm. it's great because it shows the potential value and also the potential pitfall of confronting witnesses. And we talked a little bit about you know the confrontation right. So Tyrion, as as part of Pycelle's testimony, Tyrion risks it all and he he jumps in and he asks if he asks Pycelle, "Hey, could any of these poisons choke the king?" And Pycelle answers truthfully, "No." which is, you know, really good testimony for Tyrion. And then Tyrion should learn the lesson that all lawyers have to (laughs) at some point and shut the fuck up, but he doesn't. Instead, he asks one more question. And as you laid out in in the summary, he asks, and was that poison found among the ones uh, you took from my my, uh, uh, room? And... Pycelle uses that question to get off the accusatory, well, you killed the noblest child uh, line, which is a rookie mistake, Tyrion. Next time you're on trial for your life, learn (laughs) to not ask the question, the next question. Once you get the answer that you want, stop arguing. It's a a problem that all lawyers get into, um, and it certainly happened to me, but next time, do better. I think that that observation, Clint, it interacts really well with what we were talking about before, is that Tyrion just doesn't understand the consequences of his actions. Um, and and so, like, it's both with punishing Pycelle, with asking questions, Tyrion just, it's as though he's just... I'm sorry, just, like, shooting his load everywhere. <laughs> like, For a change. Not- Jesus. All right, yeah. Not really thinking about the mess that he's making. So, that's, all, that's what I got. I mean, uh, that, that's about as relatable as Tyrion gets for me. Not the shooting the load <laughs> everywhere, but the more like, I make my point, but if uh-huh. no one starts talking again and I have a moment of silence, then I will keep going and basically undermine the point I have just made. Um, happens so to I, the best of us. I totally get it, Tyrion. Yeah. I start just nervously saying every synonym I know for every word I just said. <laughs> exactly, exactly what I do. <laughs> this is a, a real, it's a real thing that lawyers take advantage yep. of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you ask a question and then you just sit there uh, and you look at the witness. Kind of let them dig their own grave. I like that. Just kind of look at them. I like to dig up. It's much better than asking. No, <laughs> no, dig up, stupid. <laughs> The night before Varys' testimony is Kevon's second moment to really shine in this chapter. And again, by shine, I mean reveal who he truly is. He's basically Tywin's carrot. I assume Gregor Clegane is the stick. Or maybe his press secretary, there to serve his brother in whatever way Tywin needs. And that is truly born of love. And there's enough of that love that Kevin is able to save some for Tyrion, his brother's son. But Kevin's demeanor and rapport with Tyrion can't be separated from him standing by his brother in all his acts, including the shaming of their father's mistress at Casterly Rock, a mistress Kevon calls one step above a whore, which I'm sure Tyrion can't help but relate to Tysha. 
He argues that Tywin is a just man who ruled long and hard with barely any honors to show for it, which is like a really big lie, like a big fucking lie. (laughs) Tywin massacred two houses root and stem in his own kingdom, was responsible for the sack of King's Landing, organized the Red Wedding, and that's just the tip of the Ticeberg. And the slights he suffered from the Mad King don't unmake him the richest, most powerful, and most feared person in Westeros, with his descendants literally sitting on the Iron Throne. What else could Tywin possibly want? But these lies, they serve Kevin, and they serve House Lannister, and there's power in them. And keep in mind, Tyrion will reflexively defend his father from the charge of Aegon and Rhaenys's murder the following night. The Tywin hegemony is strong in Clan Lannister. You know, to to put this in a little bit of a different way, like, Kevin can't be Tyrion's friend or counselor because he's got this huge conflict of interest, right? Like, he is Tywin's district attorney, and Tywin wants Tyrion to settle. So there's... There's another way that the Tyrion's goals are aligned with Tywin's in all of this, too. You know, it's not just that, you know, one of them's acting as the agent for the other one. I think Tywin especially wants to be rid of the embarrassment of Tyrion. Uh-huh. Um, Tywin, and, and that's why the fact that he tells the story, that Kevin tells Tyrion the story about Tydos in this moment is so illuminating. Because I think it highlights Tywin's motive here. Like, Tywin can't abide Lannisters being laughed at. Having this family conflict in the open, it's bad for the Lannister family reputation. So what I would not give for a POV from Cersei or from Tywin during this trial, because you know... Cersei would relish two weeks of trial (laughs) impugning Tywin's character. Like, a Tyrion's character. She would let this Tyrion trial go on for years and years. Um, But all Tywin wants is for his nightmare children to recede from view. So he can secure the Lannister family legacy, which can only be with his own face. And it would help a lot if he could get Tyrion to take the steel and... Go up off to the Night's Watch where no one will hear from him ever again. As a great little moment of silence when Kevon proposes that, even through the thick stone walls of the Red Keep, Tyrion can hear the steady wash of rain. So you know both the, sort of them, the two of them are just sitting there staring at each other silently <laughs> as they let those words sink in. And again, you have uh, Kevon as, with his reasonable tone, as his reasonable sounding offer. But in the context of this, just the unfairness of this overall situation that Tyrion has to now give up his life entirely and go off to the watch and, and be hated forever by everybody. And I think that feeds into to Kevon's perspective on Tywin, that that just as Tyrion he's, he has to accept this negative reputation, Kevon wants to give Tywin the flip side. He wants to give him this positive reputation. And he is he is correct on some counts. It is, definitely seems to have been the case that Tywin propped up the Mad King for a long time, was basically running the government for him. But Kevon very conveniently leaves out the methods by which Tywin does all this propping up and supporting of the Lannister regime. Like when he he goes off on uh, their father's mistress, on Tydos' mistress, for she helping herself to my mother's jewels. And then pauses, and then is going, uh, fell to Tywin to restore Lann- House Lannister to his proper place. How did he do that? Kevon's not going to mention that to Tyrion, even though he does the, the same thing to Cersei uh, in A Dance with Dragons. Tywin had the woman stripped naked and paraded through Lannisport. Kevon doesn't bring that up. He doesn't bring up what happened to the people during the War of Five Kings, the Riverlands, that he said they will burn, my lord, to Tywin. Back in book one doesn't bring that up. And I think 
overall, I think even more than the specific atrocities that we could we could list that Tywin Lannister has committed. Coming off Kevin's speech is just this this attitude that that Tywin is owed something that whatever good work he did for the Mad King gives him a get out of jail free card, like we were saying earlier. It gives him a pass on whatever he does next because because Westeros belongs to him. And one constant running thread is that everyone kind of acts like Tywin is the king of Westeros, even though he's not. But everyone acts like he is. Like Pycelle, when he was going over his backstory in Robert's Rebellion to Tyrion, he said that he wanted it somehow to work out so Tywin could be king. And politically, that was really never in the works. But it's how everyone acts. Like he's he's in charge and whatever he says goes. And questioning that is like questioning the entire House Lannister system. And it, this speech from Kevon reminds me a lot of uh, how Jenna, their sister, describes Tywin mm. when we meet him, when we meet her in A Feast for Crows. And it's great because on one hand, it's it supports what Kevon says. It's much more intimate. Jenna talking about how, you know, it's easy to dismiss uh, what Kevon says about Tytos and how bad he made House Lannister look. It's easy to dismiss that, but Jenna gets into the details like... My dad married me off to a, a lesser son of a lesser family, and everyone was humiliated, and uh, Ellen Tarbeck laughed, and the Red Lion went angry from the room. Like, you, you get the sense of how politically bad Tidos's behavior was for the Westerlands. You can see what motivated Tywin, and Jenna says, only Tywin stood up for me, a boy of 10, and the older men were quivering, and she says, how could I not love him after that? That is not to say I approved of all he did or much enjoyed the company of the man he became, but every little girl needs a brother to protect her. And that, I think, is what Kevon is getting at, but is not willing to put in quite those terms. That what he feels about Tywin is rooted in in childhood and how they kind of grew up together, and uh, and they're not willing to. And Kevon isn't quite willing to to make the connect the dots between who Tywin was and what he's done. And I think Jenna has a more, even though she still loves Tywin, I think she has a more clear eyed perspective on the man and his legacy. That's why she's able to say, "Yeah, Tyrion is Tywin's son, and that's a bad thing." And it's it, it, Tyrion has the same problem. He's he's obsessed with his own legacy, just like Tywin is. What really infuriates him here is the thought that he will be remembered as the monstrous dwarf who poisoned his nephew. That that pisses him off so much, and it makes you wonder what Tyrion hoped to be remembered for. But it's not that. So the third part of the trial features Varys, and he shows up as the kids say with receipts of basically <laughs> everything Tyrion has done wrong in his small tenure at King's Landing. The quality of those receipts, well, who's to say? Well, yeah, and we get that line from Tyrion where he says, "How do I?" Something to the effect of like, "How do I uh, challenge the testimony of a little bird?" Right? Because. Everybody, because the question is, is, well, how, I think Oberon asks the question, how do we know this, that your testimony is accurate? You weren't even there after Varys goes on at, at some length about all of the things that his little birds told him. And he wrote down and he, he it spends like half the day reading all of these, these uh, pages and pages of, of documents. And Tyrion says, well, how do I, how do I challenge the testimony of these little birds? And what that is... Um, and that is an arrow pointed directly at lawyer brains to say that this <laughs> evidence is hearsay. It is hearsay. Um, and he. Oh, wait, Clint. I thought you were going to say that this this evidence is just a collection of tweets. <laughs> All they're doing is just, pointing to a bunch of tweets. Just reading tweets. Oh, man. But tweets are not necessarily hearsay. When I can get into it, then I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You invited us onto this podcast, so... Hearsay, the definition of hearsay is not secondhand information 
that is wrong. I know that lots of people think that the definition of hearsay is an out-of-court statement used to prove the truth of the matter. That's the classic hearsay. And almost everything, I would imagine, that Varus is putting up there is classic hearsay. These are out-of-court statements, statements that happened out, out of there, used to prove the truth. So saying when Varus says that he threatened Cersei or threatened Joffrey, um, it is used to prove the truth that he threatened Joffrey. He threatened Cersei. And so, uh, yeah, I'm just saying it's bad that there are not rules of evidence. Another, you know, not great Bob thing about, <laughs> about, about Westeros criminal procedure is bad. We, we talked about this really quickly. I What's really interesting to me about this is the reason that the hearsay rule exists in the like English and American systems is because we have a jury system. And the idea is that the court is supposed to gatekeep these kinds of unreliable evidence from the jury. So if you have, for example, an arbitration proceeding or a trial before a judge without a jury, you might not apply the rules of evidence in the same way and hearsay might still be admissible. Um, and I bring it up because it's an example to me of how our justice system is becoming more and more like this panel of three judges um, that are here, that are unfair in this in, in A Song of Ice and Fire than the kind of jury system that we idealize. Uh, because even this like bedrock rule that Clint points out like doesn't apply in a lot of civil proceedings that don't go in front of juries. That's right. That's right. And I, you know, I, I think that we, um, we also talked a little bit offline about, you know, sort of how rules of evidence would, would change here. A lot of what we hear in this trial from all of various people, whether it's true or not, um, is may or may not be relevant. It might be excluded on relevance grounds. Like, for example, some of the testimony that Balon Swan and Marin Trant give about, um, Tyrion kicking or, or striking Joffrey during the bread riots, that may or may not be relevant. And I think it's probably excludable on other grounds, whether it's propensity evidence, um, whatnot. But regardless, all, almost all the evidence that we hear, with the exception of Tyana Merriweather lying about um, Tyrion putting something in the drink, is what people call circumstantial evidence, meaning like, if the circumstances um, around the evidence that we're getting might indicate or might infer that he's guilty, then um, then you can convict this person. And we see this a lot in trial procedurals where people will will um, you know make an objection. It's like, well, all all of that evidence is is circumstantial, and so you can't convict me on circumstantial evidence. And this is, I'm not giving legal advice to anybody. This is not legal <laughs> advice. But that is absolutely wrong. You, you can be convicted on circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is still evidence. It still goes on the evidence pile. If, for example, two people are locked in a room for a week, and there's a sword on the wall in the room, and nobody goes in or out of the room for a week, and then they open the door a week later, and one person is missing a head, and the sword is back on the wall, well, circumstantially, the other person, <laughs> the one who survived, probably killed that person. There may not be physical evidence, there's certainly no direct evidence, nobody saw it, but can that person be convicted of murder? 
yes, they can. And so it's just a point that I that I want to mention. Like a lot of the evidence is like, well, he didn't like Joffrey. He didn't, you know, he he really was upset. He, as as Emmett mentioned earlier, he really kind of wanted to kill him. That's circumstantial <laughs> evidence that he killed him. And unfortunately for Tyrion, that kind of stuff would would often come in it, it, as as we've talked about before. It might often be admitted to prove Tyrion's guilt, even in a sort of modern trial experience. And Tyrion has Tyrion's own perspective shifts when Varys gets on the stand, because with everyone else, he just thinks to himself, oh, how did I make this many enemies? They all saw, they made up some things. They saw some things that that's not direct evidence, but I can't deny. And then we get this structural shift where we go from this flood of witnesses to just one. I love that it takes Varys all day. <laughs> like the previous day, we had like a dozen <laughs> witnesses. Varys, Varys gets his own day because of how much stuff he has. Varys is always showing his work. He's got all these, yeah, all these details. And I love, I love that you know Varys has a burn book on everyone. Mm-hmm. Like would have loved to see in the show, like Varys pull out his Tyrion folder and then we zoom out. <laughs> and he's got the Pycelle folder and the little finger and the Illyrio. Yes. Yeah. Little opposition re- research on himself in there. Four like, volumes like, of Cersei. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Cersei's got a whole shelf. Right. But, uh, because this is Varus's job. My personal goal as a lawyer is to have a burn book as good <laughs> as Varus's That is that's a good standard. It's a high standard to hold yourself to because that's this is his whole job. Like This is what he's always ready to do. If Varus gets up in the morning like, if shit hits the fan, if someone I've worked with goes down, I have to be ready to say, yes, they were always obviously a problem. Like He, he was developing one on Ned Stark soon as Ned Stark showed up to town. And Varus always had to be ready. And it's a little... A little more personal for Tyrion because he did trust Varys, but it's not as it's not as bitter, of course, as something like Shay, or even as sad as something like Bronn. Because with Tyrion, it's just with Varys, it's just like 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 what Tyrion says about Sansa. What did you think was going to happen? You really thought Varys was going to put his neck on the line for you? Bronn said, "I'm not your bloody brother." And same thing for Varys. He's not family. He has to be able to survive you and move on to someone else. The main event, or dare I say the champion, of Tyrion 9 is Prince Oberyn Martell, who walks in immediately speaking my language, desires for threesomes, and talks on history. Yes. <laughs> Specifically, absolute primogeniture and laws of succession in Dorne. By Dornish law, the crown would go to Marcella instead of Tommen, and raising her up could provide all sorts of thorny issues for Tywin and Cersei. The latter herself would be in line to inherit Casterly Rock under the Dornish system, and don't miss the reminder that Cersei was born before Jaime, ahead of the Valonqar prophecy coming in the next book. And Dorne is an ally of the Lannisters that they still need, while the Riverlands are a mess, the North still unsettled, and soon the Ironborn in the West will be making trouble. Would Tywin really wage war against one branch of his own family, against a sorely needed ally, in a land that has been an anathema to the crown for the purposes of conquest and occupation? I I love the way that you f- frame that, because I think Oberyn almost poses this walking argument for war over peace. George makes Oberyn an illustration of what happens when law and justice fail. Oberyn's vendetta against the Lannisters is because the rule of law has failed Oberyn. It's failed the Martells. That's what the Lannisters' reign here represents. It represents the killing of children. That's what it's based upon. There has been no justice for Elia. And so I think that the way that George portrays Oberyn, it's not just that he has this vendetta. 
It's that, as we have all acknowledged, he's like the sexiest character in all of the books, right? And I think that's intentional. Combat and war seduce you. When destruction becomes necessity, war is seduction. There's there's no difference there. Um, and And I think that this is one of the things that's just drawn so well about this chapter is that it's Oberyn who represents the breaking point between trial as the rule of law in a trial procedure and trial as combat, trial as war, because he shows exactly how and why the rule of law break apart. Those are great points. I also love that he is making a legal argument for war here. He because you know as as. Manu mentioned, if he, if Dornish law's law applies, then we, my friends, are in a very different situation. And I love how Tyrion immediately, like, thinks through, um, kind of, you know, some chess moves mm-hmm. or Sivas moves <laughs> as to what that would mean for Cersei. Because as, as everybody notes, it means that Cersei would be the heir to Casterly Rock. And so maybe he can use that. As as a bargaining chip, and um, I think it's I think it's really fascinating. I think it's really well done. I really love what you said, Mary, about the seduction of war because this is exactly what's happening. But I also love that um, Oberyn is using sort of a legal platform during this trial in order to make that argument to to put sort of a patina of legitimacy onto what he really wants, which is which is fire and blood, which is war. Um, and I, I just think that's a great point. Yeah, this is a really interesting dialogue scene. It's working on a, a couple of different layers, especially when you come back on reread. And yeah, I love the idea of Oberyn as this kind of embodiment of literal seduction, but also the seduction of, of war and violence, because he's he's offering that to Tyrion. Like, all this chapter, Tyrion is so frustrated, so uh, at odds with his family. And Oberyn's here to say, well, just fuck them then. Fuck it. Fuck all of them. <laughs> Run away with me. And uh, you see them talking to each other a lot like they did when they first met earlier in the book. They're circling each other. They're aware that their interests overlap, but they don't fully coincide. So they're left trying to figure each other out and decide how much they can trust each other. And neither one is entirely honest. Like, Oberyn doesn't even say out loud he's championing Tyrion so he can get a shot at Gregor Clegane. That's just kind of left implied for you to put together. And it makes for a great dialogue scene because they're both... They're both making themselves vulnerable in different ways, and they're staying armored up in different ways. And they have a few things in common that they can always come back to. They both they both hate Tywin, they both love sex, and they're both addicted to sarcasm, which means they're always going to dance around the point before they say what they mean. Oberyn just asks if Tyrion killed Joffrey. Tyrion turns it around and says, no, did you? And then they can just bullshit back and forth for a while. Again, especially about sex. That These two, you put them together, and they just start they just start posturing for each other. Oberyn reminisces about fucking Aliyaya. He mentions that Alaria is getting uh, hotter for Cersei by the day. And then he tells his little story about the the fatally horny guy sent by Daron the First to occupy Dorne. Oberyn filters everything through sex as part of his swaggering bravado, that, that persona that Mary was talking about, but also because for him, as Mary also said, sex and violence are extensions of each other. And just look at how George writes this. Oberyn mentions that Alayaya was great in bed, in the same breath that he reminds the audience about the whip marks on her back. The price Oberyn would have to pay to get Cersei in bed and keep Ilaria happy there is condemning Tyrion to execution. Sex and violence. Oberyn has two spears and he uses both frequently. Remember the foundation of his legend as Tyrion told it to us. He had to fight that duel for sleeping with Lord Ironwood's mistress. 
And that story about the unfortunate Lord Tyrell really ties it all together. This is a political story about the subjugation of Dorne by the Iron Throne, of how the young dragon added insult to injury by forcing Dorne to submit specifically to the Tyrells, the Reach Lords, their longtime rivals. The punchline is that Oberyn would rather sleep with the Scorpions than Cersei. He'll never get in bed with the Lannisters, literally or otherwise, because he does not see the murder of his sister and her children as an isolated incident. He sees it as part of a pattern of violence and humiliation, part of the, the same story as that guy that the Targaryens sent. He links it together with the, with the occupation, all this inflicted upon Dorne by the other six kingdoms. And Oberyn is implying Dorne will respond to the murder of his relatives the same way Dorne responded to that long-ago occupation, by rising up and reclaiming their freedom. And then Oberyn implies he has already done that by poisoning Joffrey. And this is here mostly just to keep the reader guessing, because we know that neither Tyrion nor Sansa did it, but we haven't been told yet that it was actually Olenna. And I remember on first read thinking, oh, was it Oberyn all along? Did he orchestrate things just to get right here? Tyrion asks if Oberyn did it, and Oberyn never answers no. On reread, knowing that Oberyn had nothing to do with it, this is less heavy than just funny, because Oberyn is messing around and taunting <laughs> Tyrion for the hell of it. <laughs> Who knows what plan A for Oberyn was, as we've said before, because the writing process for Dorne has been tortured and went through many revisions. There's the theory that he poisoned Tywin. All we know is that he chose to take advantage of this moment, to put himself in front of the man who killed his sister. But Oberyn is not alone on the game board, and this is where we get some of the most significant setup for his brother Duran, and the drama that will unfold when we actually get to Dorne. Oberyn didn't kill Joffrey, but he is willing to take advantage of his death, because now the Martells can use Marcella to start a war. We learn in A Feast for Crows that Dorne doesn't actually have the strength to back this up, which is why Duran wants to secure a Targaryen marriage alliance before he starts that war. But that's not really what matters here. Oberyn is hinting at this plan for a reason. It's the same reason he told the, the story of Lord Tyrell and the Scorpions, and that story about Cersei twisting Tyrion's baby dick. In every case, Oberyn is trying to communicate something to Tyrion. I am here to burn this down, but you don't have to go down with it, because I can tell your family hates you as much as I hate them. But the question remains. Does Tyrion hate his family? When Oberyn threatens Tywin, Tyrion is disturbed, and when Oberyn flat out asks Tyrion if Tywin gave the orders for Elia and her children to be killed, Tyrion says no. Now, he doesn't stick to the script Tywin gave him. Tywin is currently saying that Amory Lorch was responsible for all the Martell murders. That's the party line. And Tyrion acknowledges that, no, it was Gregor who killed Elia and baby Aegon. After all, he thinks to himself, he has nothing to lose by telling Oberyn the truth at this point. Why should he be loyal to House Lannister as an institution now that House Lannister has basically kicked him to the curb? And yet he still feels this need to defend Tywin. He lies, George writes, without ever asking himself why. It's just, it's foundational. It's a prior he won't examine. And I thought while reading this chapter this time, I thought, it's so interesting that Tyrion feels this need to defend Sansa and also Tywin. People who are totally different, and he has totally different relationships with them, but in this chapter he feels the need to stick up for them both. And that's, that's something he's, he's not willing to give up, even as his family turns their back on him. And that's just so cruel and brutal and sad. Tyrion desperately wants these connections, but they're being severed. And I think part of a way to look at Oberyn and his, his anger about his sister is that that's what it looks like when those connections are taken away from you. So as a lawyer, I can't imagine lying reflexively. Just can, cannot at all. <laughs> who would who would ever possibly do that? But it's so funny after this whole chapter of Tyrion going, yeah, fuck my dad, fuck the family, fuck all this. They're all liars. And then he goes, no. No, yeah. of course not. No, it's, it's an amazing moment. Absolutely. The claws are long and deep, long yeah. and deep in him. Oberyn, despite being a dastardly promiscuous sex warrior, 
is showing himself to be adept at understanding the Game of Thrones, something Duran will further confirm in later books. Back when we met Oberyn in Tyrion 5, we talked about how he emerged on page fully formed. George knew exactly who he was, what he was, and what role he was going to play. So when he swaggers into Tyrion's cell, claims Tywin Lannister is mortal, and that there is no justice on this side of the mountain, we are truly on board with what he's cooking. When he declares himself Tyrion champion, there's that feeling of, what is that? Hope? Something that surely <laughs> won't be dashed like a head against stone in later chapters. Oh, spoilers. God. <laughs> Oprah's going to be just fine. <laughs> And yes, uh, speaking of what's coming next, going into foreshadowing and groundwork, like we mentioned, this is the uh, this is the setup for Bronn's Stokeworth plot going forward. This is, unless I'm mistaken, this is the last time we see Bronn in the books so far. This is it. We just hear about him going on to Stokeworth and then what happens there. And part of me wishes we'd somehow gotten a POV on some of that stuff, like a couple of Bronn chapters maybe even. But also, the other part of me loves how we keep hearing about how badly it's going in Cersei chapters from afar. She keeps getting news from the Stokeworths mm. and going, you did what? <laughs> <laughs> Your plan to kill him was what? That's really funny, so I, I wouldn't want to give that up. He just shows up with a fire tweet every three months and then disappears back into the ether. Exactly. He's living living his best possible life. I would have I would have liked to have a POV there when he decided to name the kid Tyrion, though, because that, that is one of the funniest moves the, in the entire story. The idea of Cersei being defeated by like a Twitter villain in Braun, like that's a perfect metaphor. <laughs> uh, Cer- Cersei's online meltdown would be the stuff of ages. I can just imagine. This tweet is by someone you muted. This tweet is by someone you muted. This tweet is by someone you muted. <laughs> he's, like the, the, he's like Martin Shkreli, but <laughs> different. Ooh, ooh. I don't know. Uh, also, with Braun, he he describes how he would fight Gregor, which does end up basically being Oberyn's strategy, which is uh, you keep him at bay for a long while, and then you you hope he gets tired, hope he goes down. Uh, Oberyn has the advantage of fighting with a spear, which, as he points out, is really the only way to make that work. Because the problem with that strategy, other than if you make one mistake, you're dead, as Bronn says, is that Gregor is not only strong, he's also really tall. He has a bigger reach than almost anybody. So you're not going to be able to keep him at bay for long unless you fight with a spear like, like Oberyn does. Yeah, it's basically that IRA Margaret Thatcher quote about how you have to be successful every time and he has to be successful just once and then he'll <laughs> yeah, <have> exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of being successful just once, there's also that line um, from the trial that I just caught on this one reread, where Cersei urges Tywin to put Tyrion in chains for Tywin's own safety, and then Tywin <laughs>, laughs it off. He's like, "Oh, I will not be. Uh, I, I will. I'm not worried about a dwarf." And it's like, "Oh, buddy, oh, you buddy, <laughs> give him a crossbow. He'll take you down." Uh, so it was, it was a cute little foreshadowing. One that, uh, that Manu pointed out, the, the, the sweet lies and bitter truths Tyrion thinks about uh, about Taisha when he's thinking about Sansa. And that's just great setup. I love that Tyrion thinks he is already as cynical as he can possibly be. And then Jamie <laughs> lets him out and goes, no, actually, there is one thing you're still kind of naive about. There is one thing you've been sticking to that's not true. And I love that, yeah, that, uh, that T- Tyrion is right that he was lied to about Taisha, but is wrong about what the lie is. That Taisha was not the one to lie to him, that it was Jamie and Tywin. That reversal is gonna gonna hit home all the more because little moments like that. Yeah, Tyrion's at level five Jokerfied right now. He's gonna be at like level twenty by the time we get to Tyrion eleven. Enough, and now I want Joaquin Phoenix's Tyrion. So many, <laughs> so much Tyrion casting. And then lastly, for foreshadowing, uh, there's the talk about crowning Marcella, which does pay off in a Feast for Crows. 
kind of. This is one of those things like the Miranese not where I feel like George had a bunch of different plans for how this possibly was going to go. I think Marcella dying, poor Tommen and Marcella, they're so sweet, but they're like the doomedest characters in the entire story because of how clearly they need to be gotten out of the way so we can get to, to Targaryen stuff involving the Iron Throne. Uh, so who knows what George's original plan for that was, but that is uh, Ariane attempts to crown Marcella in a feast for crows. It it does it does not go well. She only loses like a year and like a third of her face. It's not too bad. <laughs> that's true. That's that's less than Viserys <laughs> lost for trying to crown himself and Renly and, and Rob <laughs> and Tyrion. Well, yeah. Wait a minute. There's a pattern here. Yeah. Somewhere in here. So moving into theory and discussion, I want to talk a little bit about the Game of Thrones adaptation of this chapter, which I think they did quite judiciously, uh, combining this and a little bit of Tyrion 10, as well as pulling in Oberyn's baby speech from Tyrion 5. And what they did was kind of break out. This chapter is very well paced between the trial pieces and the pieces in Tyrion's cell. What the show did was kind of segregate that into two separate episodes. In season four, episode six, The Laws of Gods and Men, we we get the trial in full, including the shape part, which is going to come up in the next Tyrion chapter. And that becomes both a showcase for the ensemble cast, not quite at the purple wedding level, but you still get kind of everyone involved and people exchanging looks. They even got Jamie in there. Um, so it's like a fun, but it's really a showcase for Peter Dinklage. And everyone kind of remembers his speech at the end and his going off and demanding trial for combat and staring down Charles Dance as the only Peter Dinklage can do. It's great. Um, and so we get all that. And that's one wonderful set piece. And then in the following episode, season four, episode seven, Mockingbird, we get kind of a three part um, series with Tyrion where first Braun comes to hang out with him and then Jamie comes to hang out with him, kind of going through all the same machinations about how the trial went and who's going to be his champion, have a lot of the same conversations. And then they really spotlight Pedro Pascal in his role as Oberyn Martell. Um, comes in, wonderful scene lit by one single torchlight that kind of sits behind uh, Pedro, um, casts its shadow on Tyrion, which is kind of perfect, calling back to the whole shadow on the wall thing that's at the core of Tyrion's storyline. Um, Ding. And then, <laughs> um, you know, we get that baby speech from Tyrion 5 where he talks about meeting um, Tyrion the first time as a little baby, what Cersei did to his dick, you know, ripped Tyrion's dick. Um but and then that kind of turns when, you know, Oberyn's like, but what do I want? And then that kind of builds into kind of the last half of this chapter that we talked about, where he kind of lays out everything with Gregor Clegane and who gave that order. And it really builds to a swell in the moment that when Pedro Pascal stands up, takes the torch in hand and turns back around to Tyrion and says, I will be your champion. And you can even like feel it in Peter Dinklage's reaction like that surge of hope that rush that like chill he got that like i might not be fucked yet i mean you are dude but for a moment for a brief brief moment you seemingly are not fucked those two episodes that's like thrones hitting at its highest mark you know like mm -hmm. there's some parts of season four that are not good <laughs> but but those scenes are like yeah that is the shit that is what's going on. And I remember I had read this book before watching season four. And because of what, Manu, you just mentioned, that sort of feeling of hope, that when we got to the mountain and Viper and the fight scene, even though I knew it was going to happen, like there was parts where I was like standing up and cheering. 
like the Detroit Lions just won their first playoff game in 32 years, where I was like, yeah, motherfucker, we did it. Kill that guy. And then, you know, of course, it all happens. But it, it, it all, like, it, the way that they put together the trial scene, which is phenomenal, magnificent, like A-plus stuff, um, and then the way he's going to be rescued from this, you know, terrible predicament um and then pay it off at the end just really magnificent stuff um and that's the stuff where it's like okay if if you're looking at that part of the show like you get it you get it why this is the biggest show of all time perhaps where like yeah yep hitting on all cylinders a plus absolute banger banger shit yeah. I mean, I think that Tyrion's speech, the, like, I wish I had enough poison for the pack. Oh, my God, yeah. It's better in the show than in the books. It is. It is. 100% right. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, it, it's it's like draft, it's the final draft instead of the draft, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's all there in the books, but the way that it's executed in the show is is better. I think that there's also something, like, in particular that, Peter Dinklage also brings to the performance of it. You get it from the page by itself, but not really. Like, there's just something that... Like, I love this chapter reading it, okay? But watching it... And I... Because I I did read the books first. Like, and my history of the... Like, I read these books, like, right before I started law school. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... But I remember being so excited to see how this was going to unfold and like hyped in the way that I had been waiting for waiting to see this moment for years. And I saw it and I was like, holy shit, this was even better than what I was expecting. It's just like that's it's kind of one of those moments that like will will never be erased for me, like whatever other sins the show had, which are many. Um God, I'm so glad that I got to see this scene improved on on TV. Just immetable. Incredible transcendent. <laughs> really well said, all of you. And yeah, I agree. I think they did a great job distilling it down because you were never gonna get a situation which you have all these witnesses that the TV audience is going to have to recognize and remember what their relationships to Tyrion are, especially when you, you know, not even devoting a whole episode at any time to this storyline. You have to balance it with all the others on the show. I think they zeroed in on what they needed to do to get the the unfairness of it to stick with the audience. They kept Pycelle and his great line about Joffrey, which was very important. <laughs> that's, that's how you get the audience to go, boo, in this moment. You don't have to know yeah. who Jano Slint's sons are, but you know that sucks. And... Yeah, Dinklage, he he gives it this this kind of this volume that, of course, is not going to be there in the books. And this sense of, of raw rage, uh, especially linked to how, how much he he helped these people. We'll get into that more in the next Tyrion chapter because that's when he thinks it to himself. But they emphasize it more in the show that he says, I, I should have let Stannis kill you all, that I put myself on the line for all of you. And and this is how you repay me. And that sense of, of, of injured merit to go all classical with it, I think, comes through really strongly in, in Dinklage's performance. And then uh, the other thing, as Manu mentioned, is the, there's the breakup. Uh, there's the scenes in, in Mockingbird that are broken up with Tyrion speaking to the different people, one of whom is Jamie. And it's a big difference between it's a big difference between book and show that Jamie and Tyrion have a bunch of different interactions when Jamie gets back to King's Landing, whereas in the book, George reserves it for that one that one powerhouse scene when Jamie lets Tyrion out of the cell. 
which I think was a good call because it focuses their relationship there. And Tyrion finds out about Jamie losing his hand at the same time he learns about Tysha. It's very emotionally uh, intense that way. But it is a little it is a little force that Jamie is like hanging out in King's Landing for what seems like weeks before he uh, sees Tyrion. Like even in Tyrion's next chapter, when the duel is happening, George writes like, there's all the Kingsguard holding everyone back. And presumably Jamie is one of those guys. But he like never even like makes eye contact with Tyrion. So it's a little artificial. So I think I do like in the show that you get you get to see Dinklage and and uh and uh, Nikolai talking back and forth and to give them those scenes, because those are great that's great stuff. And I think that is gonna wrap us up for a Storm of Swords Tyrion 9. Uh, Clint and Mary is, you know, as soon as we got started with the Storm of Swords, I saw this chapter on the far, far horizon, <laughs> and I knew, I knew I wanted to have uh, both of you, I could get, if we could get both of you on for it, so I'm so glad we were able to, and, and thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is, uh, as, this is great. I love this chapter, and, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be, to be back, to be, uh, hanging out with both of you, um, friends that I haven't seen in person in far too long, and so... Hope, hope to hang out again soon and thank you again for, for having Amen. us on the pod. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this is this has been a delight. This chapter is great. Y'all are great. Uh, Likewise. And yeah, it's been it's been it's been lovely. Uh, you know, a lovely murderous time. So. <laughs> uh, you can find us at Learned Hands Pod at pretty much any of your podcast uh, options. Uh, you can follow us on. Uh, Blue Sky or Twitter at Learned Hands Pod. You can send us an email at learnedhandspod at gmail.com. You can follow me if you want on Blue Sky or Twitter at Clint W. Um, mostly just posting about the Lions these days. The Detroit Lions, not the Lannister Lions. Uh, although, the you know, good Lions. The, the good Lions. The Lions uh, you're allowed to root for. That's right. Um, I don't really remember my social media anymore. I don't use it very often. <laughs> Mary, I'm on Blue Sky. <laughs> You're the Mary on Blue Sky, if I recall correctly. Yes, I am the Mary on Blue Sky. The only one. Uh, the, the only one. The <laughs> only one who matters. Uh, Damn that's, right. That's a real. That's a real person. I mean, there's the Hobbit, but not yeah. a real person. <laughs> yeah, the it's M E R R Y, like the Hobbit, not like Mary, Mother of God. This is definitely not, not a Mother of God, like the synonym for drunk. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps new listeners find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits, including exclusive episodes every month and regular uh, and early access to our regular episodes. You can follow us on Twitter, Blue Sky, Instagram, at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter and Blue Sky. And I'm Manu, and you can find me at Bob on Twitter and Blue Sky as well. So, coming up on the Nauticast, next week it's going to be our next Star Wars episode, our second episode on Episode 5, a.k.a. The Empire Strikes Back, a.k.a. The Good One. Our first episode on the movie is up for all of our $5 and above patrons now over on our Patreon. A couple weeks after that, we'll be back with Fever Dream, uh, George R. R. Martin's 1982 a vampire novel, covering that for all of our $5 and above patrons. So our episode on Chapter 29 of Fever Dream will be out for our patrons in a few weeks. And then in between those two, a couple weeks from now, next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, we head out to nowhere, actually. We stay right here in King's Landing. Yay! 
as Jamie tells his fellow Kingsguard Knights to get it together. Now, if not sooner. I don't know about y'all, but we're doing our performance reviews at my job, so I feel this is an appropriate time for Jamie to do his performance reviews with the Kingsguard as well. Where does Jamie get off telling anybody else that they are failing in his du- in their duties? Come on, well, that's, Jamie. That's the that's joke. really how Boris Blount feels about it. <laughs> What the hell, man? I'm, I'm picturing uh, someone, you know, leading a PowerPoint says, you know, be a Balin Swan, don't be a Marin Trance. <laughs> that's what we're, we're taking away from this chapter. Oh my gosh, someone needs to make that PowerPoint. <laughs> like, or else I'm going to think about it for weeks. Yeah. Uh, so thanks again, everyone, for listening. Thanks again, Clinton and Mary, for coming on. And we will see you next time in A Song of Ice and Fire for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 8. <laughs>